This is The Guardian. This week, we're revisiting some of our favourite episodes of the year so far. Today, the final episode of a Today in Focus special investigation, The Division, New Orleans. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, please, please scroll back, listen to them first, and then come back. At the end of today's episode, there is an update on what has happened to our main characters since the series was released back in May. So do stick around for that. And a heads up, this series features strong language and depicts scenes of violence. Previously on The Division, New Orleans. Quante Reader has been in Angola prison for almost 30 years, serving life without parole for the murder of his childhood friend, Mark Broxton. Quante has always said he's innocent, but sometimes it takes his wife, Vanessa, to keep him going. Because sometimes I'd be, you know, just wake up and, why am I ever going to get out of this situation? And she would be right there. Man, you're going to get out of this situation. She never gave up on me. She never disbelieved. In the investigation, there were two suspects. One was Bird, a man with an alleged motive and who had just got out of prison. The other was Kwante, who had an eyewitness against his name. That eyewitness was Earl Price. Price testified that he had identified Kwante in a lineup and signed the back of his photo. And that was a central piece of evidence in the case. There was no scientific evidence linking Mr. Reader to the crime. There was no physical evidence. There were no fingerprints. There were no uh, firearms identification. There was nothing. The entire case rested upon the testimony of one gentleman. In 2020, a change comes to New Orleans. Tonight, you folks have bestowed upon me an incredible honor one that I will not now or ever take for granted, to serve you as your next DA. The city elects Jason Williams, a black progressive prosecutor who promises to reckon with the past. And one of the first things he does is set up a civil rights division led by Emily Moore. I get so frustrated by the utter wastage that we see of of human life with the kind of sentencing that we are dealing with. The division takes on the case of Quante Reader, and Assistant District Attorney Bidish Sama gets his hands on Quante's entire case file, something none of Quante's own lawyers have ever been able to see. In there, Bidish finds something that changes everything something that has been sitting in the DA's file for the entire time Quante has been in prison. A handwritten note from the prosecutor in his case. A note that appears to show that Earl Price, the only testifying eyewitness, came into the office before the trial and said that he never actually picked out Quante's photo in the lineup. It says Price says he picked number five. I know that's an issue because... At the trial, Mr. Mr. Reader's photo was number six. And not only that, but that he actually picked out the photo 
belonging to the alternate suspect instead. Third. And then the last thing it says on this page is Price says that his name will be under number five. And that would mean that his name would be under the alternate suspect. I remember calling Emily because I knew that this was such a big deal and telling her something along the lines of, holy shit. I think probably when Biddish told me, I swore. I think the tragedy of the fact that there was evidence in the file that the single eyewitness had told prosecutors that he had identified the alternative and ostensibly far more plausible suspect in this case is the fact that Mr. Reader had been challenging his conviction for decades on the basis that the state had not turned over all the favorable evidence relating to that eyewitness. And this office defended the Mr. Reader's conviction and it defended Mr. Reader's conviction and it kept saying there was no Brady violation. It kept doing it. It kept trying to kick him out of court. It kept saying, don't listen to this claim. All the while it had, we had in our files, favorable, very highly favorable evidence that was way more important probably than the conviction that this person had. And no prosecutor in the office after he was convicted ever thought to look in the trial file and see whether there was anything else that should be disclosed. And for me, that is a particularly frustrating situation. And this office with all this power doesn't even look in its files and admit that actually they did withhold evidence. And in fact, they withheld more than this person even knows about. It's just heartbreaking. It's just a heartbreaking um, reminder of the power differential between the government and uh, and people in prison. So you're like giving the prosecutors the benefit of the doubt that they just didn't bother to look in the file. But isn't it like possible that they did look in the file and just decided, now we're not going to hand this over? That's a very good point. I am absolutely giving them the benefit of the doubt that nobody checked and... Um, I assume that a lot of people are, you know, overworked, don't have time to check this out, simply just writing, responding to what's in front of them. Um, if anybody did look in the file and didn't turn it over since the trial, um, that's, that's, a, that's just, it's just callous. The moment Biddish saw the handwritten note and said, holy shit, marked the start of a six-month reinvestigation of Quante Reader's case. He looked back over some of the old evidence that came out at trial. How Earl Price's physical description was a better match for the alternative suspect, Bird. Mr. Reader's a big guy. Um, I think when he got picked up on this offence, he weighed around 220 pounds. Um, everybody who gave sort of a size description at the time of the offense put the weight of the perpetrator somewhere between like 160 and 180 pounds. Bird was, I think, right in that range. But Biddish also uncovered new stuff too. In the file, there was a memorandum written by the prosecutors before the first trial in which they considered reducing the charges against Quante from murder to manslaughter. They seemed worried about the man they called their star witness, Earl Price. And in particular, the story he tells about Mark going to the back of the store to buy a soft drink after being shot four times, 
the story the shopkeeper said didn't happen. The prosecutors say, and I quote, We do not believe that we stand a chance of getting a conviction on Price's testimony. And there was stuff about the alternate suspect, Bird, too. Like that Mark's family had initially believed it was him. And Biddish managed to verify that Bird was released from prison the very day before the shooting. But the biggest thing, still, were those handwritten notes in which Price says he was adamant he identified another photograph, the number on Bird's photo. Biddish called Quante's original defence team and told them what he'd found. They said they'd never heard any of this before, and had they known about those handwritten notes at the time, they would have played a central role in their cross-examination of Earl Price. Biddish spoke to the prosecutors involved in the case. Hello? Oh, hi, Mr. Daniels. It's Oliver Lockland here from The Guardian. How are you doing? I'm fine, Oliver. How are you? Not too bad. Not the too lead bad. prosecutor um, was Michael so Daniels. In your interview with Mr. Price, the notes indicate that at four different occasions he said his signature was under a different photograph. I'm just asking you whether you can recall those interactions and what he actually said, because obviously I can't, you know, I'm going off the notes and that's it. Do you have any recollection of those conversations? Why was he adamant? I have no recollection of that. No, it's been too long, too many people I've spoken to. Uh, I don't have any recollection of telling me that, but the notes are what the notes are. Daniel's main point was that Earl Price's signature was on the back of photo number six which was the photograph of Quante Reader. Nobody in the division was able to find the original photo lineup, but it was shown at both trials. So for Daniels and the others in Connick's office, the fact he came in and said he'd signed a different photo on two occasions was irrelevant. The lineup spoke for itself, and his signature was behind Mr. Reader, and the jury could have seen that for their own eyes. I actually went to the evidence room, and I actually looked at the photographic lineup and actually put in my notes that his signature was actually behind Quante Reader. To Daniels, this was basically insignificant. Confusion over numbers on the back of some photographs. But to the Civil Rights Division and to Quante's defence, this was the sole testifying eyewitness whose recollection of events had been massively challenged at both trials already who had failed to disclose a federal conviction for lying. Also, coming into the DA's office and saying, hang on a minute, no, I picked out another number in the lineup. Not once, but twice. And he was adamant. For Biddish, there are other plausible reasons why Price's signature ended up on Quante's photo as well. And a little bit further down the page, from where Price says he's adamant, he picked number five. There's something else. And then there's this interesting note. It says, Detective was typing while statement. I'm thinking that this means Price is telling our office that the detective was distracted or looking at something else when Price was trying to tell him who he picked out of the lineup. No one can go back and check with Earl Price because he's dead. But all of this isn't really what matters most here. It's whether these inconsistencies should have been available to Quante and his lawyers at the time of the trial. Whether this might have been favourable evidence for him. 
In other words, was this a Brady violation? Should you not have disclosed to the defence under Brady that Mr Price had come to your office twice and insisted that he identified another photograph? You know, 20 years later, I can't tell you that I don't see some validity to that argument, but I, know, but I also know that what he told me and what the reality of with the lineup were different. And maybe that difference should have been disclosed. I'm not going to say that that's 100% black and white, that it is gray in my mind, but that I had him, he, his lineup showed he identified Quante Reader on the physical lineup that I had in my possession and that the jury could have seen at the trial. I'm asking you very clearly, though, whether you should have disclosed these two instances. Do you not think that would have been beneficial to Mr. Reader's defense? I can see maybe uh, 30 years later as an attorney, that that information could have been beneficial to Mr. Reader, but that I and other attorneys were aware of that information. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just my decision. Uh, an attorney who was who had the file before me was aware of that information, as well as the screening attorney, and that we all reached the conclusion that it wasn't Brady at the time. The Civil Rights Division didn't see it that way. They eventually concluded it was a Brady violation. But ultimately, that would be for a judge to decide. A new hearing is scheduled. Badish gets on the phone to Quante's lawyer, Sheila Myers, and she calls him. What did she say? What did she say it was to you? She said, Mr. Reader, when we filed some paperwork, she said, you sitting down? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you sure? You, you in tight? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, he identified this other guy. And he argued with the district attorney telling them that he didn't pick you. And when, when she told me that, I just started crying, man. Because I knew in my heart they had to do something underhanded to keep me in prison this long. How did you feel in that moment? Like I feel right now, every time I think about it. It's, it's, it's so overwhelming to have people that don't even know you go behind the scenes and find something that you've been looking for for almost 29 years. And for them to find it and give it to you. You've been filing and fighting and filing and fighting. And somebody tells you, we found something that could free you. You've been waiting to hear that all these years. The day of the hearing arrives. It's a grey, humid morning in December. I arrived at the criminal court early. It's this huge, imposing building. 
The words law and order are chiseled onto one side. And apart from me, the wooden public benches are pretty much empty. I'm the only journalist here. Biddish, Emily and Sheila are all there, shuffling around their legal documents. We're in the same courtroom where Quante was sentenced back in 1995. But this time, he's appearing via a Zoom link. And I'm just nervous because I, I know what's supposed to happen. And I'm hoping it happens as it's supposed to happen. And then the judge walks in and she starts the court. Sheila stands up and does her bit. She says the case is a frightening example of prosecutorial misconduct by the DA's office. Then Biddish runs through what the Civil Rights Division discovered. The handwritten notes that the DA's office had never disclosed. That right there, it has me in a state of mind. How could somebody do this? Biddish says that this was a Brady violation, exactly the kind of information he says that the state has an obligation to disclose to defence attorneys. Quante was deprived of a fair trial. The judge agrees. She vacates the conviction. And Biddish confirms the DA's office won't re-prosecute him. And just like that, Quante is a free man. He begins to cry. Biddish apologises to Quante. He says, I know it's been 28 years long, and today you'll get to go home a free man, not facing these charges anymore. I accept his apology wholeheartedly because he wasn't a part of that regime. And the fact that he willingly gave me that and overturned it to me to be free, I can't say enough how thankful I am for him and to him for what he's done. Biddish also apologises to Miss Mary, Mark's mum, and to all the other members of his family who were there. We failed you. We have an obligation to seek the truth, which is really hard to do, he says. But we also have an obligation to tell the truth, which is much easier to do. And it's something that we did not do in this case for nearly 25 years. We have come clean today. We botched the prosecution of the killer of your loved one. Mary says she's lost for words. I guess my question would be, why, why, you know, was it easier for you to, you know, to, you know, blame Mr. Reader? I'll prosecute him. What, or was it just for the fact of, you know, satisfying me, knowing that, you know, I needed, I wanted to have somebody to pay for the crime? Did they just do it for my sake? She turns to Quante and, unbelievably, she apologises to him. She says, I'm speechless. 
I don't know what to tell you. Just how sorry I am that you served this time. But the judge stops her and says, no, Quante was a victim of the criminal justice system of that time. She tells Miss Mary, it's not your fault. And I felt sorry for him. The time that he spent there, which was 28 years, you know, was time that, um, that he could never recover. And it's my hopes that, you know, when he was released, that he would be able to pick up the pieces of his life and go forth. I really want to give her a hug because she lost her son and I lost my friend. I got released that day. Uh, four, uh, I left about 3.30, 4 o'clock. As I was walking through the gate, you know, through, across that threshold, all the weight came off my shoulder. At that one, at that one time, you could feel it. Like everything that was on my shoulders came off. I felt like I could fly, for real. I felt like I was immortalized or something. You know, that, the, the whole feeling in your body change when you know you, you're free. And that's exactly what happened. I felt everything come off me. All that prison, whatever I had on me and in me, it all got out, it came out, and it came off. I was rehumanized. And was anybody there to greet you? Yeah, Vanessa was sitting in the truck. She was waiting on me. <laughs> I got it right here. Come on, King. That's Vanessa. Come on, King. <laughs> hey, my um. single poodle. Get it, just get it. I don't want to get wet. I just want you to wet me. <laughs> Tell me what that hug felt like. Oh man, see, it was, it was, it was shocking. It was shocking to be hugging. Her on the other side, knowing that we was about to start our life again together, you know, it 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 was just, it was just unbelievable, indescribable. Since Quante got out of Angola, there's one question that still lingers around the case. Why did Earl Price testify against Quante? He goes to the police station to do the photo lineup three months after the shooting. His signature ends up on Quante's photo, but he tells the prosecutor on two separate occasions, that's not right. So why, after all of that, does he then stand up in court and say that Quante did it? There are lots of instances in Orleans Parish where witnesses are given incentives to testify. Reward money and leniency on other charges, for example. I went back through Earl Price's criminal docket in New Orleans, and it shows he was charged with two offences shortly after he came in to give evidence to the police, and that these charges were later dropped. But there is no evidence on the face of the record to suggest that this related to him testifying. 
I went to the courthouse and tried to get my hands on the physical documents related to the charges, but they eventually told me they no longer exist. I asked Michael Daniels whether Price was incentivized to testify, and he categorically denied it. Emily and Biddish also found no evidence in the DA's file to suggest that this had occurred. Obviously, there are cases, and there are many, many cases where people have a motivation to lie or to make something up or to exaggerate. It is easier to manipulate somebody's memory if there is an incentive for them to cooperate. And often that incentive is leniency on other charges or... She did say that if it had happened, the paperwork might not necessarily still be there to show it. I will never say that the records would have been there in any situation in Orleans Parish because the records are very often absent, sometimes innocuously, sometimes deliberately. But that said, Emily didn't think that was necessarily what had happened here. She has seen a lot of cases where witnesses basically just do what they think the DA wants them to do. Often... It is not the case that people conspire to frame someone that they have real doubts about. It is more true that people can form their memory and what they are willing to say and how they remember things with a theory of the case that may have already been developed by police investigators or a prosecution office. When I think of the work the division is doing to try and restore faith in the criminal justice system here, so much of it is about trying to account for the failures under prior district attorneys. And it's impossible to do that without thinking about Harry Connick, Orleans DA for 30 years, from 1973 to 2003. Quante's case was the latest in a long line of Brady violations in New Orleans most infamously John Thompson, who had been set to be executed just weeks before investigators found blood evidence excluding him from the crime. Evidence that had been deliberately withheld. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that lack of training on Brady was pervasive under Connick, that the culture at his DA's office was a tinderbox in which Brady violations were nigh inevitable. And there are many who argue that his policies were one of the main reasons New Orleans became ground zero for mass incarceration. I really wanted to speak to him, but had imagined that at 96, he might not want to do an interview. I gave him a call anyway. Coming up, Harry Connick invites me to his house. Harry Connick lives in a modest home, set on a neat lawn. Two sun chairs sit on a little porch, and a big American flag is planted to the side. I go with a photographer from the paper, and I have no idea what to expect. It's a beautiful office, Mr Connick. His wife takes me inside and shows me to his office. It's large, deep green walls, and he sits behind a wooden desk. Oh, could you could you call my wife and ask her to bring me a cigarette? Yeah. Uh, on that table, it would be fine. The office is lined with photos of his time in office, 
his accolades, his family, his son, the pop singer Harry Connick Jr. He loves to sing too. He was known as the singing district attorney and he used to perform regularly at one of the jazz clubs here. Jimmy Maxwell, it was his club down on Toulouse Street in the French Quarter, uh, asked me if, if I would come sing with his band. I said, well, how often do you want me to sing? He said, well, every, every show. And I said, I have a job, you know, I'm the district attorney of the city. And so I don't think that would be too good. And I said, but I'll come, I'll come a couple of nights a week for you. Way down yonder in New Orleans, in the land of those dreamy dreams. If you want to, if you want to light up, please go ahead. All right. The first thing I wanted to ask him about was his routine use of the habitual offender law. Those laws that allow prosecutors to use people's prior records to massively enhance their sentences. Connick was known for using it all the time, in one of the poorest cities in America. It's the reason Maurice Lewis was sent away to die in Angola for stealing a purse. And it's one of the reasons New Orleans became the incarceration capital of the world. Why did he choose to do it? Uh, I pr- probably uh, used a multiple offender statute more than anybody had before I was in office or since. There is a well-known term in criminal law, and it's the recidivism. Recidivists are people who perpetually, as a matter of their way of life, for whatever the reason may be, violate the rights of other people. Mm-hmm. As a prosecutor, I felt that I will use the offend- multiple offender law in every instance I can. For each crime, there is a victim. My duty as a prosecutor was to protect the public from that individual and the crimes that he committed or has a potential of committing. And recidivism is quite common among a certain group in our community. For every year, that individual, that habitual offender, the career criminal, would spend in the penitentiary, that diminishes the number of crimes that he's going to commit. Mm. If you get enough of them in, you're going to help your crime rate tremendously. Did you ever worry about the dragnet effects of that, though? Because there are countless instances of people who received incredibly high sentences, often life without parole for minor crimes based on their... No, you don't, you, don't do, you don't get that for minor crimes. So, there's, so for example... You, you, you get it for felonies, multiple felonies. So we're talking about possession, small amount of possession of drugs, or do you think purse snatching is a serious crime? You're damn right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, because you, you, have a, you have a victim who suffers and people used to complain about the number of people I was sending to Angola, our state penitentiary, mm. to tell them to stop committing crimes and I'll stop prosecuting them. I had a diversion program. If you were a first offender and it was a nonviolent viola- violation, he, would go into, he wouldn't even be prosecuted. He would be put into a rehabilitation program, the de- deferred prosecution program. Mm. And I started that. But if you get a multiple offender, I represented them for years, and I know them, and I know their criminal histories, and I know that 
if you give them a year, <coughs> when they come out, they'll go commit more crime. Give them five years and they come out, they're going to go commit more crime. That's what they do. You know, you hold a microphone in your hand, they hold a, they hold a screwdriver to get into somebody's house or a gun to murder. They're recidivists. This is all they do, all they want to do. And uh, they may know how to do other things, but they elect to, to, to steal, rob from other people. Sometimes there are crimes of desperation, though, aren't there? Uh, don't tell me that. This, this generous society we have, desperate for what? Money. Desperate for, yeah, employment, for... They're, they're desperate stability. for something that they don't want to get by working for. But this is also a city with... Uh, I'm, I'm not a social worker. Mm. And, and uh, my job was to prosecute. Um, I guess I would ask, though, because crime, you know... The crime rate went up um, under your tenure as well, you know. Yeah, that's why I was so vigorous. Do you not? Is I it, didn't cause it, incidentally. <laughs> you don't think you caused it? You don't think that those policies hindered rather than helped? Well, the victims didn't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, beginning of last year, there were 718 people from Orleans Parish currently incarcerated under multiple billing. 91% of them were African-American. To some people, that uh, highlights a degree of structural racism in, in those prosecutions and in that manner of prosecution. And I wonder how you'd respond to that. Well, you can't make that a racial issue because people commit crimes whether they're black or white. But the plain fact is, more black people than white people commit crimes. And you deal with each one individually. There are more black victims than white victims. They want their safety, their personal safety, and they want to be protected from criminals. I also wanted to ask Connick about wrongful convictions, withholding of favourable evidence, the list of Brady violations from John Thompson and now Quante Reader. What about when the office prosecuted and convicted the wrong person? Because there are instances of that happening. There are, um, to many people's mind, was a pervasive issue of Brady violence. Do you know one case where it happened in my office? John Thompson. So he was uh, sent to death row, he was on death row for 14 years, and then um, he was eventually exonerated. He was wrongfully convicted for a crime that he didn't commit. He says so. Well, I mean, the courts say so as well. He was released. This is the one that Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a very yeah. scathing dissent. Do you remember? Do you remember that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, dissent in the Thompson case when it went to the Supreme Court? Not really. She, she described. She said that Brady violations were pervasive in the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's full of shit. Mm-hmm. If if they were, what's the evidence of that? Well, so there's research by the Innocence Project that says um, your office withheld evidence in a quarter of all... I'd have to see those cases. and who, who made the complaints. Mm-hmm. Do you have many cases I prosecuted and convicted in the 30, almost 30 years that I was there? Thousands. Mm. You have any other stories like John Thompson? Yeah, I can talk to you about it. So there's a case that I've been 
looking at um, it's a guy called Quante Reader um, who uh, was convicted of second degree murder who's just been released after um, when was this? this happened it was a murder that happened in 1993 case hung on the testimony of one eyewitness um, and the eyewitness it later was disclosed through investigation told prosecutors in your office twice that he'd actually identified somebody else in the photo lineup but Mr. Reader was still convicted and went to prison for almost 30 years. Look, I employed people. Most of them were good, most of them were honest, most of them were capable. But those things happen and uh, I don't want them to happen. That's not my policy. And we had a very strict rule of charging people and prosecuting people unless you have evidence to warrant a charge or a prosecution, you don't do it. I don't care what the crime was or what the complaint you're gonna get from the victim or anybody else. Uh, that That's a moral, legal violation. And I don't support that. <clears throat> what would you say to somebody that was wrongfully convicted, to Mr. Reader, for example, what would you say to them? If he was wrongly convicted, I would say, I, would say I apologize. But the evidence was there apparently because we're not going to bring somebody to trial without evidence. And so if someone was charged by my office who did not commit the crime or something, that's possible. It's unfortunate and, and, and I regret something like that would happen. But we, we had plenty of cases, good cases that we got convictions on without charging someone who didn't commit a crime, for God's sakes. I'm not interested in that. It's not my nature. I know it's a moral moral violation. It's a sin to charge someone with committing a crime that they didn't commit. It was pretty confronting to hear how resolute Harry Connick still is. I've spoken to many people for this project who have reflected candidly on their own complicity in a system that, whatever Connick says, has so disproportionately punished people of colour in this city. But he didn't seem interested in that. In many ways, Harry Connick and the new district attorney Jason Williams couldn't be much further apart. A lot of what Jason's civil rights division is doing now is a direct response to the policies and the legacy of the Connick era. But there are some parallels between the two men. Connick was in power during the biggest crime wave New Orleans had ever seen. And when Jason Williams took office, the crime rate was soaring then too. We have a storm of crime, violent felony crime, that isn't approaching, it's here. Right now, a lot of people in conservative political circles are blaming Jason for that. And other parts of the city's law enforcement, including the police chief, have been increasingly criticising Jason for what they see as letting violent criminals off the hook. And we, as a criminal justice system, have to figure out how do we hold these individuals accountable who are coming back out and doing the same thing again and again and again. When I sat down with Jason, all of this seemed to be getting to him. It is daily. It is weekly. Um, it is in person at every turn. Uh, it is 
via social media, and it's in the press. Uh, he felt and, under pressure, and he acknowledged that all of this crime was happening, but thought it was ludicrous that he was personally being blamed for it. And it's not unique to New Orleans. It's all across the country. Uh, these increase in violent crime. Jason is, says is, crime is going up everywhere because of the ripple effects of the pandemic. But as the pressure has intensified, I've noticed some of his rhetoric has changed. I want to start with what the public is seeing. They're seeing videos of brazen carjackings and shootings in the daylight. I think people are frightened, they're frustrated, and they're angry. They're also seeing you and NOPD Chief Sean Ferguson pointing the finger at each other. He's been saying things like... Surge back at the violent, brazen crimes that we're seeing today. There is a clear and present danger to the future of this city, and it is violence. This kind of thing has been making people on the left raise their eyebrows. People who supported Jason in his campaign. And in that campaign, Jason made a lot of promises. Stuff like categorically saying that his office would never prosecute children as adults. And he has rode back on that promise. Like pretty early on, there was a really horrific case where two 15-year-olds killed a woman in a botched carjacking. Anita Irvin Lavige is remembered as a loving, God-fearing, smart, and successful woman, but her life was cut short. While dropping off food to family January 3rd, she and her dog were shot and killed during an attempted carjacking in New Orleans East. There was pressure to prosecute them as adults so they could get the highest sentence possible. And despite what he said before the election, that's what he did. It was, it was uh, probably one of the hardest decisions I've had to make uh, since taking office. Jason says the reason he did that was because people were kind of using his reforms against him. He says he heard stories that adults were telling younger kids, you do this carjacking for me and you won't be prosecuted as an adult because there's a new DA in town. Me charging them as an adult is not a silver bullet by any stretch. I mean, no... You know, that's, that's, it doesn't solve the problem. Um, but it, I think it was really important to not be in a situation where they could be tricked using my words to, to commit the worst uh, offenses. When you were first sworn into office, did you expect to have to make those sorts of compromises? And did you have to expect to have to make them so quickly? No, I, this, this has been a very robust first year, without a doubt. Um, there is um, a need for nimbleness. There's a need to reflect on, 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 on one's uh, opinions and beliefs. But no, I did not expect, I did not expect uh, to, to, to face those challenges as quickly as we, as we had to. As I listened to Jason, it struck me how much of a balancing act he's trying to pull off. Reckoning with the past as he puts it, but at the same time, reckoning with the present, deciding who to prosecute and how. His ideals colliding with the reality of the job. And of course, there's another thing looming over Jason's tenure. His indictment for alleged tax evasion. His trial is set to happen in July. And if he's found guilty, he'll face suspension from office. And that leaves real question marks about the future of his civil rights division. Question marks about Emily and Bidish being able to keep doing their work 
question marks about what will happen to the next people like Maurice Lewis and Quante Rida. Emily told me they're looking at a potential 200 cases where wrongful convictions have been alleged. And most of these people don't even have lawyers. Then there's the people still in the system, whose cases the division hasn't even gotten round to working on yet. All of that is now in the balance. Do you worry that there is a chance that there's a premature end to this, that you that your ability to continue to serve may be ended prematurely? <sighs> I try not to worry in life. I try to live in the moment and be present. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to do this work. Uh, I pray that we get to do more of it. I've got faith that we are on the righteous side of this cause. And I try to let that overwhelm any doubts or fears that creep up. By now, after a year, the division has intervened in a hundred cases that have led to people's immediate release from prison. It's an extraordinary number. Six of them, like Quante, were exonerated. This is the first time Quante has ever spoken to a journalist. And that says a lot to me about how many of these stories go untold. But that number, a hundred cases, a hundred people, also speaks volumes about how powerful a district attorney is. The different manifestations of what justice can look like. You have the power to lock people away forever if you want to but also the power to show restraint and even regret. I came back to Jason's office one last time. Quante and his wife Vanessa are in the big oak-panelled room. Biddish and Emily are sitting by their side. And Vanessa is wearing a T-shirt that says black by popular demand. She's just smiling the whole time, and she tells me how relieved she is the whole ordeal is over. They both just want to look forward now. Quante has grown an incredible beard. He's wearing this amazing black and white check suit. I asked Mr. Soma from day one. I asked while I was in Angola on the screen. I asked, I said, would it be possible for me to be to meet Mr. Williams? and Ms. Mark, and Mr. Summer in person to tell them all thank you. Because without them, I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably be sleeping in a bed in Angola right now. I'm too overjoyed to be angry. I'm too overjoyed at being free to be angry. And that's because of you, Mr. Williams, and you, Ms. Mark, and you, Mr. Summer. And that's why I needed to be here to shake this man's hand and shake this lady's hand and to give him a hug, you know? I'm telling you, Lord, I want some of them business, man. Yeah, I'm going to make sure that you got work to do. You got work to do.
We made contact with the alternate suspect in the case, Bird, who has never been charged in relation to the crime. I presented him with the allegations made against him during the police investigation and later sworn to in court. He said he had, quote, no involvement whatsoever in the killing and that Mark was a friend of his. He was also interviewed by investigators for the Civil Rights Division as part of their reinvestigation of the case. Last month, on a scorching summer's day in New Orleans, I went and sat in another courtroom downtown. Jason Williams was on trial in his long-awaited tax fraud case. He had come through a hidden side entrance, granted special access by the judge after death threats were made against him online. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. I would love to have felt as if this was something that we wouldn't have to take seriously, but when uh, the authorities make it very, very clear that, it, that we have to, it quickly became uh, one of the most frightening things I've ever gone through. The state's case was basically that Jason and a partner at his private law firm had intentionally submitted fraudulent tax returns over a five-year period by inflating their business expenses. There were 10 counts, but some of these charges related to filing obscure tax documents over cash payments hadn't been brought against anyone else in the district in 50 years. A lot of observers, myself included, have been taken aback by the lack of substantial evidence. And as the days went by, it turned out the case was incredibly thin. The state star witness, Jason's former tax preparer, who himself had already taken a plea deal, offered days of shambolic contradictory testimony, where he admitted to lying over his credentials and acknowledged that Jason had never asked him to file fraudulent returns. The jury deliberated for around two days, and Jason was found not guilty on all ten counts he faced. It cleared a long-standing cloud that had been hanging over him since he ran for office. It's been the hardest period in my life now that we're through it, and I thought that there would be this overwhelming relief and there is, believe me, uh, prayers were answered. Uh, but it's like uh, being shot in the leg. Uh, and you're really grateful uh, and thankful and relieved when the bullet in the slug is removed from your leg. But there's still a lot of pain, still a lot of trauma just from the process. I was pretty adamant throughout the campaign and, and from the first rumblings of this that it was politically motivated. But I, I will tell you, it, it, um, it, had, it had its toll on, on the way that I trust people, how I see the system. This is my pepper spray. If a, if a cop carries pepper spray, they've got to be sprayed with it first. And so as a prosecutor, I felt that disorientation and that pain. So there is absolutely a, um, a heightened sense of awareness of this awesome uh, power that I have that uh, the other lawyers in this office have as prosecutors. Jason's name has been cleared. And in many ways, it's a huge victory for the movement for progressive prosecutors around the US. 
And while he's still under pressure amid a continued rise in violent crime, he now has the remaining four years of his term ahead of him. Throughout all the intense scrutiny Jason faced during the trial, the Civil Rights Division has been quietly getting on with the work, taking on more and more complex cases. Emily and her team have now intervened in over 200 instances, with 159 of those resulting in release from prison. And Jason says many of them have left a mark on him. All these stories, they're, they're, they're sort of scorched into your brain. The stories I talk to my kids about because people need to know about the humanity that can be made a part of the criminal legal system. Uh, and they need to know the lack of humanity that has existed for a very long time and the detritus that's been left behind because of it. Cases like Betty Broaden, who was one of the oldest women serving a life sentence in Louisiana. In 1983, she was sexually assaulted in her own home and then managed to shoot her attacker with the gun he held to her as he tried to rape her. She said she shot in self-defense. After the division re-examined her case, a judge finally agreed and vacated her conviction. I will never forget her words um, in that hearing, uh, what took you all so long? And cases like Quante's. Since the series came out, Quante has been working several jobs in New Orleans, fleet management work for a delivery company, working as a hospital porter, and he's also been talking more about what he's been through. Just last week, he made a trip to Washington, D.C. to speak at the Kennedy Center about his experiences of the criminal justice system. And they had the evidence that said I didn't do the crime. Another man was picked before I even went to trial. They arrested him and let him go and put me in this place. Took me away from my family, my friends, and everything that I could have had. All those years. But I'm back. I'm free. I'm home. Quante says, after 28 years in Angola, and now eight months in the outside world, he's still coming to terms with his freedom. The last time we spoke, he was driving on the highway in the early morning on the way to work. He told me sometimes, on his way in, as he crosses a bridge across the Mississippi, he looks up to the sky. Sometimes, he said, he stops the car and pulls over and just sits there, taking it all in. This series is presented by Oliver Lockland. The series producer is Josh Kelly. Original music and sound design by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer is Nicole Jackson. Additional development production by Katie Fernelius and Pete Sale. We'll be back tomorrow.
This is The Guardian.